Father, um, we need your help, not because your word is unclear or hard to understand, although parts of it are, but mainly because, Lord, hard, parts of it are hard to accept. This morning, uh, Lord Jesus, you said some hard words that we need to hear. Help us to find what you have created for our good and what is it to teach us about you. Would you give us receptive hearts? Would you keep from our minds those things that would distract us or prevent us from hearing your word as it's intended to be heard? And would you make us into people that love your good design for marriage to last a lifetime? We pray all these things and your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. It was a social media post with $70 billion implications. Jeff Bezos announced the divorce of he and his wife, Mackenzie Bezos. 26-year marriage ended. As far as anyone knows, there was no prenuptial agreement, which meant that Mackenzie Bezos would be entitled to half of her husband's $140 billion net worth. Now, no matter how you slice it, that is a high price to pay for a divorce. And yet at another angle, you, we come to know that you never really pay for a divorce in dollars and cents. There's a price that is to be paid and the wreckage that it brings into people's lives. One author, Wendy Plum, wrote very eloquently about this in the New York Times. She described the wreckage and horrors of divorce in her life. She said, the affairs metastasized in our relationship from the inside out. By the time all was said and done, there was little left to save. Our marriage had become like a leaf eaten away by caterpillars, where the petiole and midrib remain with some ghostly connective tracery in between, not enough even to hold in a drop of rain. It's a horrible thing, the wreckage that divorce brings into the lives of those who experience it. Uh, knowing what I know about the statistics of marriages and divorce inside and outside the church, it's likely the case that none of us here are totally unaffected. Whether you've gone through a divorce yourself or whether you just know someone you love who's gone through one, it's a hard thing to think about how painful it can be and even to hear words in scripture that tell us that divorce is a sin that leads to other sins. You can understand why the disciples respond the way they do in Matthew 19 and verse 10. After Jesus is teaching on divorce, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. It's just too hard. Why not just avoid that whole hornet's nest altogether? And yet, we're in a series called God's Good Design, God's Beautiful Design, showing us how the way God created us in the image of God as male and female, two halves that are to be brought together into one whole in marriage, that that is actually for our good. And that's why we need more than ever to hear what it is that Jesus and the rest of Scripture say about this important topic. How marriage is intended to be for our good, between a man and a woman for life. 
and yet that there is great carnage and wreckage that can be brought into it through sin. And yet, even then, there's redemption to be found. We'll see this in three, three sections as we move through mainly Matthew 19. We'll also go to important other parts in Scripture. Uh, Matthew 19, uh, 3 through 9 will be the first two points. First, we'll see the good design of marriage in verses 3 through 6. The good design of marriage. Then we'll see the horror of breaking marriage in verses 7 through 9. The horror of breaking marriage. And, And then finally, from other passages, we'll see the grace that redeems marriage. The grace that redeems marriage. Let's begin in verses 3 through 6. The good design of marriage. The occasion for this whole discussion is once again the Pharisees laying a trap for Jesus. This time they pick a hot-button issue of their day, the question of what were the legitimate grounds for divorce. In verse 3, the Pharisees came upon him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now there's a whole freight of meaning and theological discussions behind that. We'll come to those in a moment. But for now, it's enough to know that they are laying a trap for Jesus with this question of, divorce, and when, if ever, it is legitimate. Jesus responds the way that he often does when controversy swirls. He goes straight to God's word. He takes them back to Genesis 1, and more particularly Genesis 2. He answered them, Have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female, And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Last week we looked at how God created us from Genesis 1. You could say that's kind of the macro, big picture view. He made us in the image of God as two genders, male and female. In Genesis 2, we get the micro view. That that same story is told now with more detail added to it. Adam is created after all the other animals. He's given the task of naming the animals, and in so doing, he starts to notice this pattern. Each of them have a counterpart. There's male and female, yet there is no other half to him. It said that God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. That's the only time in Genesis we're told it was not good, something that God made. So God puts Adam to sleep. He takes a rib out from Adam, and he fashions a woman from that rib. Adam wakes up, and he sees his new bride. And his first reaction is a bit of poetry. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You will be called woman because you were taken from man. Guys, he set a pretty high standard for the first words to your wife from day one. And then right after that, God says something. In Genesis 2.24, those are the things that Jesus quotes directly. It's often called the leaving and cleaving. That a man shall leave his father and mother and Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That one flesh idea there undoubtedly has within it the idea of the intimacy within a marriage physically. There's a physical joining together of two halves between male and female. And yet there's more to it than that. It's also the joining together of them spiritually. That's what Jesus emphasizes here, this 
whole union between the two. He says, they are no longer two, but they are one. Then he draws out the implication for us. What God has joined together, let no man separate. This is a good bond. And it's not one that is supposed to be broken. Now before I move on, I just need to point out how easily here Jesus appeals to the Old Testament, even to Genesis 1 and 2, in order to settle this dispute with the Pharisees. It's become common in our day and age to say that maybe one wants to be a follower of Jesus and yet not to take the Old Testament to be the word of God. Some pastors say we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Others say that the Old Testament are the understandings of those of God's people in the day, but not themselves the word of God. And yet Jesus here assumes that these are God's words. He assumes they are understandable and authoritative. If you're going to say you are going to follow Jesus and listen to his teaching, it's simply intellectually dishonest to not hold the same view he does about the Old Testament. Now, there's more to be said about that, but that'll be enough for now that Jesus has incredible confidence in the Old Testament here. But he uses all of this Old Testament teaching to establish the goodness of how it is that God created marriage. It's between a man and a woman for life, for our good. Oh, you know the beauty of a marriage that lasts, don't you? You've likely seen it, maybe in a family member, or maybe you've been in a marriage that's gone for decades and decades now, and you can see it from the inside. We do this thing at weddings sometimes where we get everyone on the dance floor and they start playing a, a song. All the married couples are, are called out. And, and then they start saying, all right, if you've only been married for a year, sit down. And so the bride and groom have to sit down and a couple other couples will sit down. And then they draw it out a little more. If you've been married less than 10 years, sit down. And people sit down and you draw it out and draw it out. Eventually, there's usually just one couple or two couples out there. And there's something beautiful about seeing a marriage that has endured lasted, stood the test of time. There's a softening, a growing together, a a blessing that only comes with the deep roots of a union that that lasts the way that it was intended to. Billy and Ruth Graham were very open about their marriage and describing even some of the difficulties of it. Early on, Billy said that uh, Ruth, it turned out, had some very strong opinions about things. Uh, 60 years into their marriage, they said, you know, there was some adjusting for the first few years, but we're pretty well adjusted at this point. Then Billy described in very sweet terms the beauty of one of these long-lasting, God-given marriages. He says, we have a better relationship now than ever. We look into each other's eyes and touch each other. It gets better as you get older. There's something beautiful about this one flesh union that God has created. Uh, Now that's not to say that every marriage that lasts and lasts will have this sort of obvious grace to it. Now that, that is something that the grace of God has to work into us. And yet we should long for this to be true of all of our marriages, that we would see God's grace greater and greater ways in each other the longer we are married together. Now, this idea of being bonded together, Jesus explicitly says, 
means that we should not allow anyone, no man, to separate the bond God has created. That's because the bond that God has created is not the sort of bond that can be broken without violence. I think that help understand this, think of the difference between a paper clip and a staple. If you have a paper clip holding together a bundle of papers, it's not that difficult to take the paper clip off and have all your papers intact that you can now separate easily. If on the other hand, you take a staple and put it through some papers, I don't care how careful you are trying to remove that staple, there will be damage done to the papers in the removal process. Jesus here warns that God has given us a good gift, and yet the ending of this gift, divorce, it'll lead to all sorts of pain and sorrow and horror. Well, that brings us to our second point. What happens when we ignore this warning? When we do separate that which God has brought together? That brings us to verses 7 through 9, the horror of breaking marriage. Now, we need to realize that Sin both leads to and results from divorce. Sin both leads to it and results from it. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, I I didn't explain earlier why the uh, particular trap that they had set for Jesus would have been so pernicious, but it turns on the understanding of a particular passage, Deuteronomy 24. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go to Deuteronomy 24. It'll be up on the screen. We're just going to look at verse 1. When you go home tonight, you can read verses 1 through 4. That's the whole relevant section, but we don't have time to go through it all, so we'll focus on the most relevant part, verse 1. This was a part of God's Word that spoke to this issue of what were legitimate grounds for divorce for God's people. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and it goes on and on and on from there. The relevant portion is that question of if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Rabbis in Jesus' day had been wrangling over what that meant exactly, and there were different schools of thought that had emerged. One of the most prevalent of that was coming from a rabbi named Hillel, and it essentially said that finding no favor in your husband's eyes or finding an indecency might mean practically anything. It could mean that the wife did not prepare dinner correctly one night. It could mean that the wife was not acting in public the way the husband wanted. It could mean the wife just didn't look the way the husband wanted on a particular day. There was virtually any justification you could think of that was provided so that husbands basically could divorce their wives with, uh, with any, any reason at all. Now it's particularly damaging given the context of the ancient Near East where marriage was intended partly to provide support for women when they were no, when they were not able to support themselves in the, the society and economy in which they lived. For a woman to be married pro- promised her provision and security for the future. For a woman to be divorced took those things away for her and there was no good prospect that they could be returned to her. So this was doing great damage to those who were being divorced with literally no ground, just the, 
whim of a given husband at any given time. Jesus responds to this. He says, because of your hardness of heart, this is in verse 8, uh, Matthew 19, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus gives both the intention behind the law, the intention behind the law, and he interprets for us what was meant with this uh, grounds for divorce. He clarifies what it means to uh, find something indecent in her. First, the intention behind the law was not to justify divorce. It's just to, to give lots and lots of reasons for us to, to divorce. No, it, it was intended to restrain evil. See, if the Bible stopped at Genesis 2, if all we had were the creation of Adam and Eve and life had gone on without sin entering the world, there would be no need for divorce. There would never be an occasion for a divorce because there would be no sin. That was always God's intention for us. The goodness of marriage is seen in sin not destroying that union that God has created. And yet the reality is that sin did enter the world. And that means that sin will express itself in every area of life. So what do you do when men start finding flimsy excuses to divorce their wives on a whim, to for, to pursue any number of other sins. Well, God gave laws to limit the evil, to restrain the evil in men's hearts. The certificate of divorce was a way of saying the, the, this is the only legitimate ground for divorce. If you have the certificate, then you are allowed to have a divorce. It's permissible. Doesn't mean that it was the intention from the beginning. Jesus also goes on to explain what it was that was the ground for giving this certificate. This, what, what it, that phrase meant that it, uh, something indecent was found in her. He, he says, it's, uh, that, uh, verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus uses there, it's recorded for us by Matthew in Greek, uh, a term porneia, which is a, a catch-all term. Uh, it's a very broad term referring to sexual sin. He's very likely referring to all of the teaching of the holiness code in Leviticus of the things that were uh, abominable in the Lord's sight in the area of sexuality. This undoubtedly would have included adultery. It would have included homosexuality and bestiality and uh, different types of forbidden marriage. In using this term, Jesus is saying sexual immorality, sexual sin is the legitimate grounding that was intended for marriage. And anything else results in only further sin, adultery, because the, the person is still married. Now, that leaves us with a number of questions. How do we put this together as New Testament Christians, those who are not living back at the time of Deuteronomy? And how, how do we put together God's original intention for marriage with what Jesus says here in the rest of the Bible? Let, let me just say there are two questions that we need to be able to answer. The, the first, is it ever okay for a Christian to divorce? Is it ever okay or permissible for a Christian to divorce? And second, is it ever permissible for a divorced Christian to marry? 
Those are really the two questions we can boil this whole discussion down to. And uh, I'm going to go through three different views in uh, Bible-believing evangelical circles, and then we'll look at um, one other passage that will help us to put this all together. So the first position is one put forward by Pastor John Piper. He's probably the most famous adherent to it. Um, it, Again, uh, I'll say that I respect the men that hold these positions even when I disagree with them. Pastor Piper's position is that Matthew 19 and this exception clause are not referring to marriage. They're referring to betrothal. Betrothal was something close to how we think of an engagement. Not exactly the same. Uh, There's a greater commitment there. But uh, Pastor Piper's contention is that if during the period where they were betrothed to each other, the soon-to-be husband and wife, the husband were to discover some sort of sexual sin in his soon-to-be wife, he had grounds to divorce or end the betrothal before the marriage actually happened. In Pastor Piper's view, there is no such thing as a legitimate marriage. He takes absolutely what Jesus says, that uh, what God has joined together, let no man separate, and therefore any subsequent marriage would be adulterous. Now, again, I appreciate Pastor Piper's work on much things. With respect, I disagree with him on this. Uh, I don't think it makes sense of the text to say that this is referring to betrothed couples instead of married couples. It seems as if the Pharisees were asking a question about marriages, not betrothals. The reference to the certificate of divorce certainly puts it in the realm of marriages. It, it, it seems like a, a strain of the text to me to try and put that into this realm. The, the second position is that put forward by some, uh, again, Bible-believing, good evangelical pastors over in the UK by the name of William Heth and Gordon Wenham. They see uh, a difference or a disjunction between the exception clause for divorce and for remarriage. They say that Jesus is here saying that, yes, there will be legitimate grounds for divorce in the case of sexual sin, but it does not follow, he's not giving here any ground for remarriage in such a case. You may get divorced, but you may not remarry. Now, again, I do not find that to be a particularly compelling way to read the text. It doesn't seem to me that Jesus is speaking of one and not the other. I don't find their arguments in the syntax and the grammar particularly compelling. I'll also say it doesn't seem to fit that if someone was granted a legitimate ground to divorce, and we believe in grace and redemption, that there wouldn't be a legitimate ground to remarry third view, the the one that I'm convinced is correct, is what most evangelicals have held historically and even today. It's the most broadly accepted evangelical view. It is that in two very tightly bound situations, divorce and remarriage are acceptable for a believer. Those two sections come directly from scripture, from The exception clause we just read in Matthew 19, that would be in the case of adultery, sexual sin in a spouse. And then another passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 15 through 16. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip open to that. 1 Corinthians 7, 15 and 16. In this case, it is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. 
1 Corinthians 7, the whole chapter is worth reading. It has lots to say about marriage and divorce, but uh, this is the most relevant section for us. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know wife whether you will save your husband, or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? So in this passage, you have the case of a believer married to an unbeliever. Likely it was two unbelievers that were married, and one of them converts to to become a Christian. And then they are forced to deal with the reality they are now a spiritually mixed marriage. So this is not in any way endorsing missionary dating or anything like that. And yet, it's a real question you have to deal with. What do you do with when you end up with a marriage with a believer and an unbeliever? Well, the answer is, live with the unbeliever as long as you can. Use the opportunity to witness to them through your actions and your words. But what happens if the unbeliever one day says, you know, this is not the person that I signed up to marry. They have changed totally. They used to be into all the same things I'm into. Now they're into Jesus and I'm done. And what happens if that unbelieving spouse makes it clear that they're not coming back and they leave? Well, according to the, this exception passage here, 1 Corinthians seven fifteen through 16, they are not enslaved. I think that's clearly referring to the, the bondage or the, the uh, union of marriage. They are no longer uh, considered bound to their marital vows. Now, again, I want to say this with humility, realizing that People who believe the Bible and try their hardest to read it accurately disagree on this point. Yet it seems clear to me that the Bible here teaches two very tightly bound instances in which divorce and remarriage are permissible for a Christian. Now let me also say that this is no way do either of these two categories come close to allowing for anything close to divorce because of irreconcilable differences or divorce because we fell out of love, or divorce because of incompatibility. Now, the fact that the church has failed to address divorce for those reasons and many other unjustified reasons, according to the Bible, is a, a, a great, great sin that has caused great damage to our churches and to our souls. If you look at the statistics for marriage, Marriages outside the church and marriages inside the church lamentably don't have too much of a difference when it comes to how many of those marriages survive. The fact that we have not called people to repent, the fact that we have not in some cases refused to remarry people, the fact that we've not been clear on what the Bible plainly teaches, that God does hate divorce, that illegitimate divorce results in further sin of adultery, that that is no good thing. That is, that is something shameful that we as the evangelical church in the United States should lament and repent of. Now even as I say that, and even as I keep those boundaries where I believe that the, the Bible keeps them, I need to say something else. There's a, a myriad of questions that come to mind, but at least one needs to be addressed, and, and that is the issue of abuse. Now, abuse is not given as a reason for divorce. And yet, friend, if you are in an abusive marriage, the Bible nowhere teaches that that is okay or that you should remain 
as things are. Please hear me. If you're here today and you are being physically abused in your house, call the police. If you're a member of our church, come talk to me or one of our elders. That is not something that should be allowed to continue. Don't put yourself or your children in life-threatening danger. The Bible calls that sin, and it's a type of sin that can literally cost you your life. Please reach out for help. Second thing is that there are other types of abuse, emotional, verbal abuse. Those likewise are not grounds for divorce, and yet they are sins according to the Bible. If you are being verbally or emotionally abused in your house, please reach out for help. Come to your pastors or your elders. It's part of your church family's job to intervene. Maybe that means that we have to step in and help you have a, a, a safe space to come to, a separation for a time. Certainly it'll mean calling your spouse to repent. But in no way is the Bible's teaching about divorce and the goodness of marriage to be given as a license for abuse to be perpetrated and for it not to be addressed. Now I know that there's lots more questions that come to mind and let me just say that I would love to have those conversations if it would be helpful to you. Um, I or any of the elders would be glad to give you some of our time to work through the implications of what it means for there to be legitimate divorce and legitimate remarriage in these two tightly bound cases. Now let me also say though that we need to rem be reminded of the warning given here and of the reality that there's no such thing as a divorce that doesn't cause intense trauma. That same article by Wendy Plump contrasts the difference between the wreckage of her life after her divorce with the boring yet faithful marriage that her parents had in their old age. She says, I look at my parents and how much simpler their lives are at the age of 75, mostly because they haven't marred the landscape with grand-scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50-some years behind them, and it is a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. If you imagine yourself in such a situation, where would you fit an affair in neatly? If you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion, or something that looks a little bit like the Iraq city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery? Friends, we know too well the horror of when marriages break. Hear the warning. Sin causes it, and it leads to more sin. We should do everything we can to prevent this from happening within our marriages. That leaves one really important question left. Is there any way back from the wreckage of divorce? That brings us to our final point. The grace that redeems marriage. Grace that redeems marriage told you about uh, Pastor John Piper's view on divorce and remarriage. In 2017, his son Barnabas Piper publicly talked about the reality of his own divorce. He disagrees with his father on uh, what is the biblical teaching on this. And yet, even though he is around Christians that 
acknowledged that there are legitimate grounds for divorce and remarriage. He said in his experience, divorce is a kind of scarlet letter in the evangelical church. It's something you carry around with you. It's something that seems to always define you, no matter how much you've repented or tried to make it right. Let me just say, as a pastor that believes in redemption and grace, that if Jesus forgives a sin, then we need to learn to also. A passage will be really helpful for us is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, or, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is not Paul being soft on sin. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And the list of sins he puts out, the, both the thing that leads to divorce and the thing that comes out from divorce, both sins are listed Paul says that those who commit these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is taking seriously the holiness of God and of the sinfulness of humanity. And yet, verse 11, so, so important for us as we think about this topic. It says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. The way that's written it is a past reality, something that was ongoing. That was what they used to be, but now something different is true. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What used to be true of all sinners once they come to Christ, something else is now true of them. We used to stand before God as rightfully condemned, rightfully ashamed because we had broken his law, rebelled against him in many ways, including sexual immorality and adultery. And yet once we have come to Christ, once we've repented of our sin, once we have trusted him to forgive our sin, now we have been washed. The stain of our sin has been washed away. We have been sanctified. We have been set apart as holy for God to live now for Him. We have been justified. We have been declared innocent, perfectly right in God's eyes. Paul says all this is true, yes, even of those who have committed the thing that causes and the thing that results from sinful divorce. Brothers and sisters, if you are here this morning and you are someone that has gone through a divorce, whether you were the innocent party or not, I want you to hear this. If you have truly repented of whatever role you played in that, if you have truly brought it before the Lord and asked forgiveness and tried to take whatever steps you could to make it right, Friend, there is such thing as redemption. 
You are no longer defined by your past sin. For us as a church, we should not be a place that shames and guilts where our Savior and our God refuse to do the same. There are those among us who have been through divorces. Maybe you know some of the details. I doubt you know all of them. If someone has repented as far as we know, if they acknowledge whatever they have done that is sinful and have brought it before the Lord, then we are to accept that God has forgiven them and we are not to hold it above them like some sort of scarlet letter. There is such thing as redemption in the Lord Jesus. As important it is for us to understand that, there's also something that all of us, whether we've ever gone through a divorce, need to know about the redemption of marriage. Because it turns out that as much as God wanted us to understand and to benefit from his design for marriage to be for life between a man and a woman, that marriage on this earth was never just about bringing a man and woman together. We have one more passage we'll briefly look at, Ephesians chapter 5. It'd be worth your time to read all the way from verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Again, if you want some homework for this afternoon, please do so. We'll focus just on verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The Apostle Paul here reveals God's intention behind marriage from day one. It was to teach us about how Jesus loves all of his followers, all those who believe in him, all that make up his bride. If you're a Christian this morning, you are part of the bride of Christ. One day you will participate in the marriage that every other marriage is a shadow of. One day you will participate in the joy that all the joys in marriage are just a glimmer of. One day, whether you have been married on this earth or you have been single your entire time walking it, you will experience the thing that marriage was created for. You will experience the unending faithfulness and love of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're single, I know it can be hard to hear sermons about marriage and the goodness of marriage. Just know, friend, you are learning something about Jesus as you learn about marriage and as you observe it in the lives of those around you. When you see couples that have been married for 50 plus years and have been faithful throughout through the ups and downs, you are learning how Christ's faithfulness will never abandon you. When you watch people give vows before an altar and the newness of love in their eyes, you are learning something of the affection of Christ for you now and forever. If you're single, please don't feel as if you've missed out on the blessing of marriage. Now, the fact that you will one day be united to Christ forever means you participate in the redemption of marriage. For all of us, this means that even as we enjoy the blessings of marriage on this earth, we should realize that they are not the end. We will not be married to our spouses forever, but we will be united to Jesus forever. The wonderful, wonderful blessings of marriage are designed 
to grow your affection for Christ and your anticipation for one day being with him forever. God's good design for marriage was they would last for a lifetime between a man and a woman. Even though sin mucks that up, even though it brings the horror of divorce into this world, Jesus Christ, his claiming of his bride, redeems marriage. It makes it good news for all of us. I'm going to close with the word, words from a well-known and beautiful hymn, The Church is One Foundation. It captures this truth beautifully. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Let's pray.